0: Welcome to The Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. There's trouble brewing in China's economy. China's huge spending power is critical to global financial stability, but the country is now experiencing some evidence of an economic downturn. The trouble in China continues. New home prices in the world's second largest economy fell in July for the second month in a row, adding to concerns a growing property crisis will further slam a struggling economy.
1: The real estate sector uh, represents anywhere between 15 to 30 percent of GDP, depending on estimates.
0: Cash flow problems in China's real estate sector has some investors worried. They're concerned it could spill over into multiple sectors of the country's economy. Recent economic data has done little to calm fears about the health of China's economy. In May, youth unemployment was almost 21%. That's a record high. And exports dropped year on year by 7.5%. Domestic demand is a major bottleneck. We are losing the recurring momentum very quickly. Now, while the UK is struggling to get inflation under control, China's economy is suffering from the opposite, deflation. In response, China is taking emergency measures. China's central bank cutting key rates for the second time in three months, as this new eco data there comes in weaker than expected. The uh, central bank had reduced the uh, one year medium term lending facility by a bigger than normal margin of 15 basis points. We
2: do expect more action, not only on the monetary side, but also on the fiscal side. But
0: will it be enough to prevent a full blown crisis? Or is this China's Lehman Brothers moment? Stuart Podmore will be your host for today's pod. He'll be chatting with emerging markets economist David Rees. They'll discuss what the implications might be for future come-on prosperity and political intervention in China. They'll also look at what it might mean for the rest of the world and the 3D reset. But first up, Stuart asks David directly, could this be China's Lehman Brothers moment?
2: That's a question I've had quite a few times, both from clients and fund managers during the past couple of weeks. And you know, there are some parallels clearly, given that we seem to be having financial problems emanating from the housing market. Real estate giant Evergrande is still trying to sort out a deal with its major creditors after
1: hitting a liquidity crisis and it filed for bankruptcy protection in the U.S. last week. Another huge group, Country Garden, has announced losses of over seven billion dollars for the first half of the year and will be delisted from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange.
2: That's causing stress amongst some major property developers which want uh, Where well, one time appear to be the gold standard, certainly to the country garden. And we've also seen some wealth management companies get into trouble who have been deriving at least some of their returns from the property sector. It's not entirely clear how those linkages work. And of course, the lack of transparency just feeds this kind of panic about the state of what's going on in China. That said, I think it's worth stepping back and uh, remembering that these issues in the housing market are, are really actually well known. So the government sort of decided to shake up the sector a couple of years ago now by um, clamping down on the amount of leverage in the system, clamping down on speculative purchases of property, which had seemingly become the main source of demand um, and you know, risk to store up systemic problems in the future. And so, you know, a lot of bonds, certainly offshore, of these developers have been traded at distress levels for quite some time. Many have been dropping out of the sort of benchmark indices, et cetera. So, you know, clearly there's a problem going on. Um, it's causing some, some pain, but it's well known. So it doesn't necessarily have that element of surprise that the Lehman Brothers sort of situation did as we went into the global financial crisis.
1: And if will, you could just expand that a little bit to the wider the wider economic situation in the markets as well as the second part of that first question.
2: Yes, absolutely. So I think there's probably two strands in terms of what it means for the economy. So in the short term, you know, one of the key transmission mechanisms for policy support getting out into the economy in China in recent years has been through the housing sector. So you've typically seen an expansion of credit lending. People have taken that money, bought houses, that supported construction, which is, you know, a pretty big part of the economy, and then it's also been followed up by purchases of household goods. And so that method of policy transmission is clearly broken. And we actually we see that because the financial system in China is 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 awash with cash. Actually, interbank rates are, are very low because of excess liquidity stuck in the financial system, but it's not getting out into the broader real economy. You know, in large part because housing isn't an avenue for that to happen. So short term, that's kind of created a bit of a plumbing problem in terms of policy support getting out. And in the longer term, you know, there will clearly be a negative impact on the economy's potential rate of growth. I mean, there's a huge amount of debate about how large the real estate sector actually is a a share of China's economy. Most sensible estimates seem to put it around a fifth to a quarter. Now, if we think that a lot of the speculative demand That was driving that has now gone more or less permanently. Then we're going to have to mark down potential growth rates. So maybe whereas potential growth for the next decade looked like it could be four to four and a half, maybe now it's somewhere in the ballpark of three to 4%. So, you know, it will add to that structural slowdown in the economy. Albeit, you know, we could make an argument that by cutting off unsustainable debt fuel growth and accepting a slower rates growth is actually kind of a health. healthy development in China rather than just setting lofty growth targets and meeting it through unsustainable means. Yes, that's a really
1: good point, that last point, especially as, you know, going into April, the reopening trade post-COVID, you had estimated, I think, that there was going to be something like 6.5% of growth, uh, GDP growth in China this year. So the fact that we're trimming that, or very likely to trim
2: that in our next forecast, is not necessarily all negative. Yeah, I mean, I've clearly been caught offside. Although, I mean, up until April, I felt quite smug myself because it seemed like things were all on track um, and the Chinese growth data were going to be strong. But then from April onwards, we've seen a double dip in housing sales. And that has also been sort of accompanied by a general declining confidence, which has then passed through the economy. So there are pockets that are doing well. The kind of reopening services sector, travel-related services, seem to be doing okay But that hasn't translated into broader growth in the way that I thought it might do.
0: On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to The Investor Download.
1: Uh, And moving on to the second question, which is about that political intervention, the idea of when we last saw the People's Party Congress, there was plenty of talk about common prosperity, self-sufficiency. This particular episode, with big names like Country Garden, for example, in trouble What does that mean for the relationship between those businesses over in China and its ruling Communist
2: Party? Well, look, China's clearly a different system. It's run in a different way. And, you know, it's not for us to say whether that's right or wrong. And we could argue all day about the the relative strengths and weaknesses of the Chinese economic model versus, you know, what what we're more used to here. Um, I think we have to accept that in China, political interference or political intervention, however you want to cast it, is something that's never going to go away. And so I guess certainly with the direction of travel on the political front in China, where, you know, we've got consolidation and centralisation of power at the top of the party, um, you know, that is not going to go away and it's a fact of life. And it's been a fact of life for quite some time. You know, state-run banks are effectively an organ of the government. We've seen things like telecoms companies essentially become organs of the government. And probably now we're seeing a similar thing with the housing market, you know, whereas we had a a huge number of um, pretty bloated, as we're now finding out, uh, real estate developers. It looks like there will be some consolidation and a greater role to play for state-owned enterprises in, in the real estate sector. So that's not going to go away. You can also make the, the the argument that actually this intervention is positive. As I said, you know, if the government is willing to accept slower growth, but you know, it's talked quite often about improving the quality of growth um, and trying to reallocate resources from a sector which was clearly on an unsustainable path causing a lot of leverage to build up, oversupply of property that could potentially lead to to systemic financial problems in the future. If actually what we're seeing is an effort now to clamp down on that and reallocate the resources, labour and capital to other sectors, sort of higher technology sectors, energy transition, et cetera, which are more productive um, and can sort of try to arrest this underlying structural slowdown in growth, then you could actually make the argument that what we're seeing in terms of intervention is positive, albeit it's clearly very painful at the moment. Yes.
1: Yeah, so actually that different system, without making a value judgment on that at all, actually allows for uh, perhaps a government that can move in a more nimble fashion, and uh, is perhaps not constrained by the political cycle, the electoral cycle.
2: Exactly. Get in touch with us by email at Shorters Podcasts at com, or visit our website, com forward slash
0: the investor download.
1: That sort of takes us to the final question then. What does all this mean for the rest of the world and Asia in particular? and 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 how does that affect our regime shift narrative that we've constructed so successfully for our clients?
2: So what does it mean for the world? Well, you know, clearly China's quite a big part of the global economy. Um, and so slower growth in China mechanistically reduces global growth. You know, in, in our forecast spreadsheet, China's weight is about a fifth of global GDP. So if, for example, you knock one percentage point off Chinese growth, then you automatically knock, knock about a fifth off global growth. You know, so clearly slower growth in China equals slower global growth. In terms of the spillovers, so the story is quite nuanced. So, you know, there are countries and there are sectors that rely on China. Um, Obvious examples are emerging markets that derive quite a lot of GDP growth from exporting uh, commodities to China. You think of countries like Chile where copper exports are essentially to China essentially worth about 8% of GDP, something like that. You know, so it's quite significant that if China is a... Uh, reducing its direct demand for commodities, which I would actually make the point at the moment has been holding up quite well. It seems to be demand for commodities from the rest of the world, which is soft at the moment. But if China's demand goes down in the future and or what's going on in China causes prices to fall, um, and then those emerging markets that do a lot of trade with China or just rely on commodities trade then will suffer. Similarly, on the sectoral basis, you could imagine that if construction is going to be less of an engine of growth in the future, then Chinese demand for you know, diggers and trucks, et cetera, and maybe machinery from Germany, for example, is going to be smaller in the future. But I think, you know, the, the more f- fundamental point for me is that if you look at China's external position, it runs large structural external surpluses, and it has done basically since it joined, you know, joined the World Party as a manufacturing base for the rest of the world. And uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that in aggregate terms, China is, an, is a net drain on activities, not a source of aggregate demand for the rest of the world. And so even if you mechanistically knock down global growth, the actual spillovers to the world in aggregate, quite limited in terms of weaker Chinese demand. Um, and so... You know, we you, you've got to be careful with that nuance because the risk from China growing not as quickly is often overstated. I guess, you know, actually the greater risk probably comes through confidence shocks and worries that China's about to implode and people are just sort of retreating a bit from risky assets and, and capital that's a really, flows. But that that but that's it that's yeah. a different point.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that the point you make on the nuance there is is really important though and um understanding the implications for global growth. and actually that when you put it like that, it doesn't sound as negative as mm. perhaps one might have imagined. Um, yeah. and certainly i'm I'm immediately thinking to to then move to the idea of regime shift. I'm thinking back to the uh, some of the very relevant points we made about deglobalization, for example, and that process yeah. of deglobalization and what you say about Chinese demand and ch- Chinese supply for the global economy, I'm thinking actually the de- deglobalization narrative continues and actually
2: that could be positive still. Well, I mean, it's, it seems pretty clear to me the deglobalization narrative continues. I mean, we're going to go into a US election year where you see Donald Trump is going to be pretty hawkish on China and Joe Biden is not going to give him a free and He's going to continue to also be pretty hawkish on China. So that's not going away. But we are seeing real evidence in some of the incoming data. You say US construction of factories is starting to accelerate rapidly. So we are starting to see snippets of um, this kind of reshoring, et cetera, deglobalization going on. And I think probably what we're seeing in China in terms of the government's desire to fundamentally reshape the economy also fits that narrative. As I said, rather than pouring resources um, in terms of capital and labor into property, which is not really generating any long-term benefit to the economy, there is an effort, and we can argue again about whether it's going to be successful or not, but there is an effort to reallocate those into sectors that are going to help China to become more self-sufficient as and when it loses access to more uh, intermediate goods. So it realise, obviously, we've already seen a big clampdown on semiconductors and who's to say what's going to be next. And so, you know, this all does fit into that regime shift story that we've been telling. The flip side, of course, could be, that the rest of the world starts to lose some Chinese supply as well if the trade war really gets ugly. And we've already seen during the pandemic what that can do to inflation elsewhere. Um, so, you know, th- these things run both ways. Indeed,
1: they do. So uh, uh, thank you very much indeed for that, David. I think if I, if, uh, you've, I'm going to try a summary now and you've got to point out whether or not <laughs> I've got this right. But I think when we think about this being the the Chinese version of Lehman Brothers, um, I think you are not going for such hyperbole there, actually. I think what you're saying here is that this is nowhere near as sudden or as unanticipated. I get the sense as well, when you think about the Chinese government, that actually the Chinese government would, through the lack of constraint uh, on its power, be be searching for that almost a property pivot, a pivot away from property to broaden out or diversify that the, the strength of that economy uh, as it's moved towards self-sufficiency. And that actually that self-sufficiency plays into de globalization regime shift, but from a Chinese perspective as much as the rest of the world. So overall I'm I'm taking some positives here, whilst accepting the fact that we're going to be taking maybe a quarter, if not a fifth, of Chinese GDP forecasts and probably doing likewise on a global basis. Would that be fair?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean I wouldn't say I'm feeling particularly positive, but maybe, you know, within the current pain that we're going through there will be some positives in the long term in the problems in the property sector that we've been worried about for a long time are being dealt with. They're being dealt with quite harshly and abruptly, uh, but they are being dealt with. Um, and maybe that can sort of start to stem this structural soil line in China's economy that we're seeing. I mean, there's a huge amount of scepticism about that. And we won't find out for quite a number of years if it's successful. Uh, but at least they're making a stab at it.
0: Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroeders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. If you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroeder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroders Podcast at Schroeder's.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the investor download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance information is not an offer solicitation or recommendation of any funds services or products or to adopt any investment strategy